on for too long. Well, electrical vampires, those were proven to be true. Like your TV draws power even when it's not on, that kind of stuff. I need to know what's drawing my internet data. <laughs> That's well, what I need to figure out. There's three of you at any given time watching streaming television, right? Yeah. That's going to do it yeah. more than anything. It's, uh, well, that, I thought it was from me streaming. So that's why I'm no, no, to Twitch, no, because uh, we went over last month and this month already we're at the seventh, right? We have 1200, we're almost at 200 already. And I'm like, I don't know where this is coming from. Well, that's do you have are you watching anything through cable or is it all being streamed over the internet? Most of it's streamed HD streams, that's gonna yeah. do it. I mean, that'll do it. I guess we might have to just deal with Comcast's tyranny and pay the goddamn extra money if we need to that's bogus though i know that's why like i i haven't been watching too much twitch um just mainly streaming shit or you know streaming myself when i can but everything i'm reading it's like most people are like yeah it's like three gigs an hour or something like that usually so for real yeah wow for streaming to twitch yeah oh why do you think it was more i thought it was way less Apparently it's like at five five thousand bits or whatever kilo whatever. Uh yeah, it's it's about three gigs an hour. I got a little bit of a problem with OBS in that it lies. Oh, does it? Yeah, because my bitrate will go to shit, and I'll be dropping frames, and I'll need people in the chat to tell me because OBS isn't saying <laughs> blank blank drop frames. The last time I streamed on Wednesday, I had. The chat kept freezing up. Mm-hmm. Really weird. I don't know why that is. I've noticed today the internet just will, like, stop working randomly. That might be a lot of people checking election results and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that could be. Like, it just fucking would just stop. Well, I guess I can say this since I someone called me, I'm going to quote them here, a libtard. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> so congratulations, Joe Biden, yeah, on your job. presidency. Good job, Sleepy Joe. You're yeah. the new king of America. It, uh, I, I was like, I guess I said something to earn this moniker, so I guess, I guess I gotta just live by it now. It's, uh, it was interesting because they said that and then called Phil and I twats. You twat. So it's like, I don't know if that means they're from America. You can be a libtard twat, though. But oh, well, who, twat's catching on over here. You think it's it, catching oh, yeah. on over yeah, here? It's, it's, a, okay. it's very becoming to, uh, like, Cockney slang is all <laughs> is all the rage these days. Well, you know, I know cunt's been used a lot. That's picking up steam in oh, America. Yeah. Twat is kind of yeah. slowly drifting over here. Cunt you know? used to be a forbidden word here. Oh, yeah. Like, you could not say it. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. in rough and tumble society, if you said <laughs> cunt, it was like, ooh. <laughs> well, okay, you... I feel like you can say cunt, but you shouldn't call anybody a cunt. True. Especially somebody you want to continue talking to. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't be like, you cunt. It's never going to end well. Maybe in Britain, I think you can call refer to somebody as a cunt Yeah, that's your friends. Oh, you cunt. (laughs) It's good stuff. (laughs) It is good stuff. I love it. Uh, Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bumblebutt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about this week? It's me, and it is... Larry Eiler, The Highway Killer, Part 2. Hell yeah. Uh, We diving right in here? When last we met, our heroes in the task force had just given up for the weekend after trailing the highway killer, Larry Eiler, to a gay leather bar, then a White Castle, and then finally back to a frat house in central Indianapolis. (laughs) That's a good night out right there. Hmm. 
On Wednesday, August 31st, 1983, another dump body was found, this time in the always peaceful Lake County, Illinois. Detective Dan Collin was first to respond to the radio call, and he turned to his partner, Portia, and said, <laughs> Somebody's been using us for dumping ground. The reason Dan was able to come to that conclusion instead of thinking this was homegrown murder was because Lake County didn't produce this kind of homegrown criminal. This is confirmed. Yeah. Even still, Lake County, peaceful county, it's good county. It's usually like weirdo farmer related <laughs> shit. To be like where I grew up, basically. Exactly. Okay. Was All there right. a lot of murders there? Not really. I, the whole time I lived there, there's one murder. I one merc. Yeah. And that was, uh, I think it was a Carney who was from Out of Kansas. Yeah. yeah. So very strange murder. Carnies will kill regardless of state boundaries. <laughs> Carnies kill no matter where they you, are. I mean, usually, not all of them. A lot of times they're just pedophiles. This guy, I don't know, he killed a, a mom and her daughter. Took their bodies all the way to Kansas, and then they finally caught him down there. It was really strange. Yeah, I, I, it's a very weird case. I, Did Small I Town know. Murder do that one? No. They fucking I, should. I, I emailed them a long time ago about it, but uh, maybe there's, from what I could find about the guy, there's not that much information. Like, he, they just arrested him, and he didn't say why he did it or anything. Just, I'm a just crazy, crazy drifter. Man. Yeah, I don't know. Colin got out of his vehicle and got the rundown from the sheriff's deputy that was interviewing the tree trimming crew that found the body. Jesus, Dan, it's a kid, <laughs> maybe 25, stabbed. Dan, his guts are hanging out. I don't know if Dan's ready for that kind of uh, a comment. Dan Collin walked over to the body and pushed aside the brush in order to get a better view. The man was well-built and well-proportioned with slightly wavy black hair, a thin mustache, and two days' worth of stubble. Is this Luigi? <laughs> <laughs> he was shirtless and very hairy. He was either Italian or Hispanic, and his belt and pants were pulled down just past his hips. Never mind, that's Wario. Yeah, that's Wario. That's definitely Wario. He's always shirtless. Can't keep his pants up either. <laughs> very flatly, Colin said, Whoever did this one did the others. Shit is the same. Things were starting to point 100% in the direction of a serial killer, and no police force on the planet wants to admit there's an active one on the loose, as you can't provide comfort for the victims' families, and you can't keep your population calm when they realize the cops are no longer in control. So that you think that's why they didn't tell anybody not cause a public freakout? That's exactly it. Okay. You want to you keep as calm and pacified as possible when there's a psycho serial killer on the loose. I mean, I think in 2020... If you have, um, you know, multiple domestic murders going on, that's kind of scary too, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unsolved murders. For like sure. You have piles of them. It's not a good look either. No. <laughs> the others, as Detective Colin called them, were the ghastly slayings of Gustavo Herrera on April 8th and on April 15th, the body of an unidentified teenage boy. Both bodies showed the same cruelty and disembowelment. Herrera was a good-looking, ripped construction worker with a mustache. Ooh, could be Jordan. He was buried <laughs> He was buried under debris at a construction site three-quarters of a mile from where they were standing right now. Herrera was a complicated man. He hung out at gay bars and worked out constantly at several different gyms, yet he was married with two children. He's a secret one. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, it, the, when I heard he's a construction worker, now all I can think about is like, He's the construction guy from YMCA. Oh, from the uh, uh, song. Yeah, but the what's the band? I don't know. How do you not know? 
I everybody knows the song. I don't know if they know the name of the band. Everyone knows the name of the band. They did in the Navy. Oh, the Village People. Yeah, the Village People. There, there we go. go. Okay. Uh, see, now you're gonna say, of course, everyone <laughs> knows the name of the band. They did in the Navy now. Really? In the Navy. Are... Yes, you can sail the seven seas <laughs> in the Navy. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Sheriff's police detective Collins' mind was racing with possibility, and he thought he had a pretty good idea what the killer was targeting. Friendly, good-looking men, perhaps living with a woman, unemployed or working a labor job, and liked hanging out at bars and hitchhiking. You know, Herrera here, if he worked out at the gym a lot, you think he'd be like a ripped dude, like be able to fight this guy off. You'd think so, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe because this is the 80s, right? But we will see why that doesn't happen. Okay. It has to do with fantasy and money. Gotcha. Okay. I thought you were going to say because they didn't really have advanced steroids yet. <laughs> they, I'm sure they I'm sure they were all on D-ball. <laughs> they probably didn't have HGH yet. Maybe not. So you can get as big as like fucking Brock Lesnar yeah. and shit. After taking photos of the new as yet unidentified body, Deputy Chief Investigator Willie Smitty Smith <laughs> rolled up on the scene. He was only in his mid-30s, but he looked like Sam Elliott, complete yeah. with a weather-beaten face and gigantic mustache. I hope he had a succulent, like a sweet, smooth voice, too. Coors Light <laughs> is the blank with beer. <laughs> Smitty was today unusually dressed in a snazzy suit with sharply polished shoes, but he preferred western cowboy shirts with snakeskin boots. Now you gotta. After being brought up to speed, Smitty helped Colin and the others get the body in the coroner's station wagon, and they all joined the procession to the tiny, rinky-dink Lake County morgue. You know, I've only met one person who's worn al- or this is rattlesnake. I'm thinking of alligator skin. Well, they, hey, six of one, half dozen of the other. He, I've never met someone so proud and excited about their alligator skin shoes. Um, I, it's not. I don't know. In Minnesota, I feel like it's not like a big thing to have reptile skin shoes. Really? Yeah, that's but, like a uh, coastal thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think he was from here. I don't Weird. know. <laughs> he just, he was so proud of his gator skin shoes, man. He wanted to know. be like a rapper or something. <laughs> I guess. The sheriff's department waited in the conference room for autopsy results. Having receptionists and deputies not on the case run over pertinent files from the courthouse across the street. Smitty laid three files down on the conference room table. They were marked G. Herrera, Unidentified Boy, and a brand new blank manila envelope without even a crinkle on it. Ooh, is there anything smoother than a blank manila envelope? Ooh, ooh, I that's, love it. It's like a fresh <laughs> bath of milk. Smitty said, sit down. We have to talk over what we know so far. Another detective chimed in. Another Gacy. From across the room, another detective. Gacy was easy. We could have another Atlanta on our hands. Oh, he's referring to... The Atlanta child killer here. Wayne Bertram Williams, who not even his arrest answered any of the questions of his crimes. Smitty assigned the case to Colin to take lead on, and he handed over all evidence so far on the new body in the brand new manila envelope. Mm, I wonder if he's like like an, a fresh eraser. He's like sniffing it. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I, I know his name is Wayne Williams. <laughs> For some reason, I didn't know his Bertram. Wayne Bertram Williams. Yeah. <laughs> I learned what Joe Biden's middle name is. Have you heard of it? What is it? It's like, I think it's 
Robert or Robertcha or something like that. Robertcha or some have something. Weird. I thought it was Ryan because he's an Irish Catholic. Yeah, and it's like something way weird. 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 Yeah. All right. We got to be careful, guys. He's going to be answering directly to the Pope. I mean, the Pope. I want. I want to start that propaganda again. <laughs> so yep. he's a Catholic. Yeah. First one since JFK, though. Uh huh. So now we get to start the rumors. How about that? That he's the Pope's right in his ear. Although, How about that? We have a progressive Pope that a lot of Catholics aren't very happy about. So who said that dogs can go to heaven? And he said gays can get married. Yep. So I didn't know what's going out on over there in Rome, but I like it. Quit touching kids, though. Yeah, give it a rest. <laughs> this is how all investigations begin, a mostly empty folder. Colin's job now was to make sure it came back full of enough pertinent information to put this madman away forever. Mm. Detectives Dan Collin and Portia Rowley headed to the north side neighborhood of Chicago, which was known to have a large hitchhiking and homosexual population. I guess it should have. Is Portia a lady or yes, a gentleman? Yes, Okay. She is a uh, uh, black woman. Okay. All right. Just want to clarify that. <laughs> They checked in at the Area 6 detective station and called Smitty to see if anything else had been uncovered in the hour it took to drive to their destination. Smitty told them the fingerprints on the victim came back as one Ralph E. Kalile, born November 5th, 1954. He had one arrest for marijuana possession and more than a few others for petty theft. Colin asked the obvious question. Was he gay? We don't know. That doesn't show up on a rap sheet. <laughs> He usually doesn't. <laughs> I wish his it was his file colored in a rainbow flag. Then we'll know. We're not. <laughs> like I, I did this cop really think that was gonna be on there? He Come was on. hoping. Okay. Hey, at least he's willing to ask the stupid questions. Generally, someone's sexual orientation isn't on your arrest record. True, but it is crazy they found his fingerprints because if he hadn't had the previous arrest. They would have no idea who he is. Yep. It would just so, be random fingerprints of John Doe. Yeah, that's a thing. I mean, it's a good and a bad thing, I think, that we have DNA now. Yeah. So you can kind of figure it out, but yeah. hey, it's a whole other scenario. Completely by coincidence, Smitty informed the detectives that Ralph's girlfriend, Jolene Redcloud, <laughs> was downstairs in the Area 6 detective station filing a missing persons report for her boyfriend at this exact moment. Oh, wow. Colin went downstairs and, guess, and guessed which one was her immediately. She was half native, and it showed in her beautiful dark skin and long, straight black hair parted in the middle. Colin asked if he could speak with her for a few minutes in private. I'm not gonna lie, I'm really jealous of her last name. Red Cloud? Hell yeah. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I feel like she'd be the ultimate villain for, like, McCloud, or what's his name, Cloud on Final Fantasy VII. Or Fox McCloud. Oh, Fox McCloud, hell yeah. I mean, this is with natives, man. They always have the cool fucking names. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that right now. And the coolest lore. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, Norwegians. I have Vongen. That's my last name. Like, that's not cool. That's not fun. Yeah, it's no Red Cloud. No. I knew a kid whose last name was Kills Pretty Enemy. Really? His name was Omaste Kills Pretty Enemy. <laughs> fucking awesome. I hope he was in a metal band. No, he, he was just been. he was just kind of a weird kid, but he was <laughs> I mean, what a what a last name. <laughs> Definitely Jesus. native, that's for sure. That's awesome. In a corner interview room, Detective Colin was trying to fish Ralph's wristwatch out of the Manila envelope to see if Jolene recognized it when he accidentally knocked out two Polaroid pictures, one showing Ralph's muddy and bloody face and the other showing his ripped-open midsection. Wow, did they literally play the Kirby Enthusiasm song <laughs> after that? <laughs> Come on, she... Poor girl. 
As you can imagine, it took upwards of half an hour to calm her down from that mistake. When she was finally put back together enough to continue, she took out five pictures from her wallet to prove it was in fact Ralph. Colin noticed from the Polaroids that the two lived in squalor. It seemed the only furniture the couple had was one orange couch that looked straight out of season one of The Wire in their studio apartment. Mm. Detective Colin asked her somewhat brashly, Where do you live on? Welfare and food stamps. Look, the past is the past, and Ralph is dead. If you want us to catch the killer, you're going to have to tell us how, how else he supplemented his income. Sometimes people would call him to get drugs. He wasn't a dealer himself, but he certainly knew all of them. He had 11 joints in a Marlboro flip-top box. Are you telling me those were all for him? <laughs> we were starving, and he wanted to feed us, so he was going to go down to the lakefront and sell them for a buck a peach, a buck a piece to get us some gas station food. He left at 11.30 last night, and his last words to me were, wish me luck. Wow. I love how this cop's like so serious about him having 11 joints. I know. <laughs> I know. Come on. God, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Come on. That's like some, that's, some people smoke that in like one day. And they were 70s joints, so they were probably yeah. like a half gram each. So yeah. what, he had like four grams of pot on him. We'll give him credit. We'll give you credit here. Uh, in Indiana, you accidentally said peach. One joint for one peach. That's a pretty good trade. That's a good yeah. ass deal, to be honest. Peaches are kind of spendy up here. Spe- oh, if they're ripe, I'll give you all the joints for a peach. <laughs> I love a ripe peach, but I hate waiting for them to get ripe. I know. I that's the thing I hate about. It's great we have access to like all the fruits all year long, but yeah. they only taste good. During a certain section of the year. Yep. So. Ralph's mother was a heavy-set Hispanic woman with closely curled hair that looked like a cap. In her own words, she felt she pushed education and careers too hard and thought she was partly responsible for Ralph's slow turn to the quote-unquote dark side. You can't blame yourself for that. According to her, Ralph had been a good enough student in high school and had been offered a full ride at a Division II school to play football. Right before enrolling, however, he changed his mind, wanting to smoke weed and stay close to home. One day, in his early 20s, Ralph was found setting fires in the backyard. On top of that, he would become violent without provocation. Okay, this is a message to everybody. All it takes is one joint. One injection of marijuana. You lose your Division II school scholarship. Mm. You start By choice, ma- you, you lose it. <laughs> you start making fires, yep. and then you get violent. So yep. think about that next time you and your bros or ladies hit up that joint you you're think done about that you're not going to be playing no uh, uh university of ohio iowa or whatever mm-hmm. no ohio- the university of ohio iowa <laughs> campus <laughs> i was thinking of the university of miami ohio <laughs> okay yes okay gotcha. i still don't know if that's a division two school i think it's a jv school yeah that might be juco <laughs> It got to the point where city police gave his family the option of moving him out of the neighborhood or putting him in a mental hospital until he was cured. Ralph's mother and stepfather took him to the local Salvation Army mission, and within a few days they were able to set him up with a low-income apartment on Hermitage Avenue, which put him within a few blocks of all the drugs and booze he could think of. By trying to help Ralph get out of the drug game, his family moved him directly into the honey hole. For a while, he lived day to day, sharing liquor and needles with men and women who shared his current predicament. Then he met Jolene, and the two of them became codependent, lived off welfare and dreams of one day becoming wealthy. So, uh, first off, Salvation Army, I mean, 
bless him for what they do, but sometimes, do you think his mom took him there because I'm assuming at the time they were more of a straightforward Christian organization? Definitely. Um, now, I don't think it's in there, but they don't openly talk about it. I wonder if she's like, well, maybe here he'll find God. They openly talk. Something. Well, as we'll see, uh, I think a lot of parents are blind, either willfully or mm. out of love to the fact that their child might be gay, right? Gotcha. Salvation okay. Army is pretty anti-homosexual, even today. They 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 kind of have that in their bylaws. You gotta you gotta evolve, uh, Salvation Army here. Here's the other thing I'm wondering. So him and Jolene, I it seems like with uh like drug addict couples or junkie couples, yeah, like they're not r- really a couple. They're just kind of like two people who work together to get their fix. Yeah, they're like business partners. Yeah. yeah. You ever notice that? Definitely. I, I wonder if that's kind of what these two are. I don't really know, because it seems like he might be gay, possibly. That's the thing. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a, it's very confusing. Mm. Detectives Colin, Rowley, and Ralph's girlfriend, Jolene Redcloud, went back to the couple's apartment to retrieve Ralph's dog, Shag, oh. to bring to Ralph's mother's. Colin predicted accurately that this next part wouldn't be so easy. Within an hour, this woman had learned of her son's death, and now police were going to have to ask hard questions about their son's sexuality. Was Ralph gay? Did he ever, to the best of your knowledge, get paid to have sex with men? My son was not and is not gay. Ralph is not gay. He has been dating women his entire life. Ooh, that's denial at its finest there. Colin softened and changed tactics. This woman was willfully ignorant of her son's sexual preferences. Even bisexuality was off the table to her. I'm sorry, ma'am. I had to ask. We've had two other murders in Lake County, and because of all the similarities, we believe these murders to be sexually motivated. They were all young men, all stabbed to death. Back at the Lake County morgue, Detective Colin walked behind Dr. Helen Young, a forensic pathologist, as she briefed him on what they'd discovered thus far. When they got to Ralph's body, she showed him that his wrists had bruises that were without a doubt a result of handcuffs, as well as 17 knife wounds, three in the back, nine on the left side of the chest, four to the abdomen, and one to the left side of the neck. Jesus. The wounds went all the way to the internal organs, so either a hunting or butcher knife were used, and it had to be at least eight inches in length, and the lungs were punctured and the liver was cut. When his belly was sliced, he got so deep and cut so hard that he sliced his liver in half. Oh, that's angry. Eight-inch blade, that's like this, isn't it? It's pretty big. Is it like a Bowie knife or yes. what? Yes, a Holy hunting knife, fuck. chef knife, Bowie knife. As someone who has used a knife in a kitchen several times, I gotta say I prefer the like five-inch chef knife works. It's a more control. Okay, so Eight you inches can like a little cut... Long. Yeah. Are you, maybe since you're a bigger gentleman, do you prefer a bigger knife? I'm not sure. I'm really, I don't know what I, what is best for me. I haven't really done a lot of cooking. You should, you should like lay out all your knives, see if you can handle a paring knife, uh, the different sizes of chef's knives. I have a feeling a small knife, knife would be aggravating. <laughs> a paring knife? Yeah. Like, like using it to carefully like trim the peel off an apple or something? <laughs> Fuck that. That's, that's for nimbler hands than mine. <laughs> Oh, here's what I was going to say. Now you can see sort of why these guys didn't fight back. All of them had handcuff wounds on their arms. So, so they were tying up and bondage for money was was really how this was getting done. He was okay. offering them 
$100 to tie him up, watch him wriggle around. He'd say he'd masturbate. That's how he'd get off. Mm. But then he'd actually, you know, kill him. Kill him. You know? Yeah. Who Who else did that? Well, I, I get, BTK, I guess, did it against their will. But mm-hmm. um, I swear there's another killer who would, like, restrain him. Like, they were going to have sex together and then kill him. Maybe that was... uh. Herbert Mullen, maybe that's mm, what I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. the uh, Fox Hollow Farm mm-hmm, guy. Mm-hmm. What a creep. Yeah, oh God, he's creepy. At the time, running alongside the war on homosexuality was satanic panic. Detective Colin fell into the trappings of the day by asking if this was Satanism or possibly the work of a devil cult. Dr. Helen Young didn't really want to hurt his feelings and just simply said she didn't know and she'd look into it. But <laughs> yeah, it obviously she... was not. <laughs> Shut up, Colin. Whatever. You know, I, I've been watching a lot of paranormal documentaries, and every time these people are like, oh, they used to do satanic rituals yeah. here, I just am like cringing. It's yeah. just, come on, guys. You know that's not what happened. That means they played with a Ouija board or <laughs> yeah. played Dungeons and Dragons or something. <sighs> so stupid. That's not the answer for every single paranormal activity. They nope. did satanic rituals here. Up next to be interviewed was Ralph's previous girlfriend a woman named Marie. Marie was wafer-thin, with a nice facial structure and black hair down to her waist. Colin asked Marie if she was ever aware of Ralph possibly being a hustler. Like we said in episode one, most hustlers weren't gay. They would trade sexual favors like hand jobs and blowjobs for money. Mm, like Phoenix Saint. Exactly. <laughs> I think we made that joke last yeah, time, too. Well, I'm saying, if, if people don't believe us, give, give yourself a Google. And it's P-H-E... And uh, or is it F E N I X? I think it's F E N I X, not Phoenix like P H O E. I don't know how you spell. If you just type something like that in like gay porn, he'll come up because I think he's pretty p- popular in that in that in that, that community. He's I got think. a big crucifix Does tattoo. He? So where yeah. on his chest? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so he's easy to. He looks like a Italian American gentleman with a big crucifix. And if you wonder why Adam and I always talk about him, we are. Th- second degree two degrees from him certainly we know somebody who knows him personally mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he kind of became a little uh, joke a little bit it's kind of mm-hmm. funny <laughs> marie said if he was a hustler he never told her but there were times where he would leave her place for a couple hours and come back with big wads of cash how do you not think that's suspicious well i guess they just uh, <laughs> maybe she thought he hooked people up with drugs and had a finder's fee that's what she actually thought oh okay yeah okay i forgot they're in the drug game mhm it's yeah tangentially related mhm colin felt as if a lightning bolt had struck him he motioned for detective rowley to hand him the file and dug out a piece of paper is this when he was living on hermitage street in the salvation army apartment no this was before i think he was living at 4017 north kenmore As she finished saying the address, Colin's heart jumped into his throat. On the piece of paper he just pulled out of the folder was Gustavo Herrera's last known address. Oh. 4019 North Kenmore. Oh, The two victims were neighbors. And even if this was a coincidence, it was Chicago after all, they probably hung out at the same places. And if they did, the killer probably hung out there as well. They were finally on to something. What? If you're a police officer, (coughs) or detective, I guess... You see these coincidences, like, it just has to be like in a movie where it's just like that, the shots going out and you're just like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's awesome. From Marie's home, Colin and Raleigh went back to the detective station in Area 6 of Chicago to talk to the local police about where the hustlers usually hang out. Sitting at the sergeant's desk was a portly man chomping on a thick cigar. 
<laughs> His name was Detective Sergeant Keen, and he was a wealth of information about local players. Colin asked him, Have you heard of any suburban or rural murders where young men were found with their pants pulled down? Queer murders, you mean? Like yours stabbed real hard in the belly? I do would expect someone chewing on a cigar to say something like that. Keen thought for a moment, and then took a big old drag on a cigar. Yeah, actually I got a call from Kankakee County. They sent over their case file. It's still open. Let me run and get it. Kankakee. Kankakee County. Ah, interesting. Okay, seems like a type of gene you'd find at <laughs> fucking Coles <here. laughs> Or Sam's Club. Yeah, check out this new line of Mary Kay Nashley's. Kankakee County. Jeans. <laughs> Keen lumbered his stocky self over to the filing cabinet and began thumbing through the drawers. Here it is. Crockett, like Davy. They ID'd him based on a laundry tag in his pants. The kid was stabbed real bad. It's the pants that stick in my mind. There was another one just like it. Hold on, I'll find it. What What about the pants? He didn't like the brand of them or what? Be, all of them being pulled down <laughs> just past the hips. I, th I figured <laughs> Keen was complaining about they were Levi Strauss. He doesn't like them. It's the cheapest <laughs> pants you can get. I'm a Wrangler man At myself. least get some 501s. Go to Old Navy, goddammit. Ugh. Keen went back to the drawers and opened several of them. Ah, here we go. J.R. Johnson. He gave the case file to Colin and told him to have fun. Holy shit. Everything was falling into place for Colin. Herrera lived at 4017 North Kenmore in uptown Chicago, but was found in Lake County, Illinois. Ralph lived two doors down at 4019 and was found in Lake County also. Stephen Crockett lived at 4501 North Malden Street, which was also located in uptown Chicago. He was found in Kankakee County, Indiana. J.R. Johnston lived at 3241 North Broadway, but was found in a rural area in Indiana's Lake County. So, so we know it's in Chicago he's finding these gentlemen. Someone was killing off an entire neighborhood of hustlers and doing everything they could to keep Chicago police off their trails. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, I guess Chicago would probably, at this time period, be where kind of the, the gay community would be very big right? in the midwest for sure yeah there i guess they're in apparently milwaukee as well so. and not to mention just like atlanta it's gay people that are going missing so nobody cares as mm. much well atlanta was black kids that were going missing mm. so nobody cared as much mm -hmm. as if it was white kids or regular straight people you know? the, let me this is 83 83 okay yeah it's uh i think if I remember right from, um, I think it was a Ken Burns documentary. Is he the one who did all the decades? Uh, did he do decades? I don't know. I, th I thought it was maybe him narrating it or whatever, but they talked about... Well, he wouldn't be a narrator. I thought he was the narrator. He's from... the filmmaker. The narrator is usually, it's some old guy that doesn't do anything else, but... <laughs> uh, but anyway, on the, the like, 80s thing... They talked a lot about like the the gay movement in the eighties, so or gay revolution kind of mm. in the eighties. So, mm. but that was more. They talked more about like California. So the U.S. or the Midwest is quite far behind that generally at the time period. Mm. Obviously, oh so, yeah, yeah, middle of the country for mm. sure. That's why most of it looked red or yeah. looks red even today on election maps. Well, apparently that's why we are getting like the worst of the second or I guess they're calling a third wave yep. of coronavirus, yep. so rurals. And guess what? Fauci's been saying that since day 1. I 
Yeah, I can tell. It's just, uh, by the way, you should probably tell everybody you feel better, right? Oh, yeah, way better. 100%. <laughs> uh, also, yeah, I know my, my mom in the little small community, the little county that they live in, like, everybody's sprawled out. It's getting, you know, everywhere there. Yep. So Just remember, humans are the only things that can pass it, and, <laughs> and, and it's easy hey, to do. minks, apparently, too. And minks. And R.I.P., those cuties. Uh, I... I wouldn't want to be the person who has to kill a million of those things. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. God damn it. It's the pants, Keen repeated. Any smart killer wouldn't leave behind obvious connecting evidence like that. If he didn't, us cops would probably just figure drugs or something motivated these murders. Collins' pager went off, and he called Smitty. You're you're not going to believe this, Colin, but there's an entire task force looking into 12 other killings with the exact same pattern we have. The highways... The pants, the stabbings, and they're all hustlers. All their dead bodies are from Indiana, though. They did have a survivor from uptown Chicago that they never decided to call and mention to us. I feel like it would be kind of prudent. No shit. <laughs> I, I see it now. Colin is going to dress up very snazzy. He's going to have 11 uh, marijuana cigarettes in his, in his little Marlboro box. And yeah. he's going to be offered and be like, you want a blowjob for five bucks, man? Uh. He's going to catch this killer. He's going to do he's going to be the bait now. <laughs> yeah. The cigarettes, the marijuana cigarettes are the most important part here. Very smart to hide them in a Marlboro box. Mm-hmm. When Colin started working on this case, they had 3 bodies including one identified. And now before lunch, they had at least 15. Jesus. Back in Indiana, McPherson and the task force boys hadn't been sitting with their thumbs up their asses. Leads were slow in the investigation, and since they couldn't run any down, they were running what's known as an elimination investigation on two other suspects besides Larry Eiler. You remember the pig farmer who had a history of getting drunk and hog-tying men? Mm-hmm. He had already been eliminated, unfortunately. Yeah, I, he's guilty of something, I'll tell you that much. <sighs> guilty of knowing how to have a good time. <laughs> Detective Colin knew it was time to get face-to-face with the task force. He was furious and perplexed over how a multi-million dollar computer system or even a 25-cent phone call didn't link these murders together sooner and could have stopped all states separately investigating. (laughs) This multi-million dollar computer is like a piece of shit today. Oh my god, yeah. They take up the size of a room and they're fucking bogus. It's like the size of a room and it's like, uh, what, like 256 uh, kilobyte hard drive on that bad boy? I'll tell you what, if I were to bring this flash drive I'm holding back, Mm. it would blow their fucking socks off. (laughs) Smitty set up the secret meeting with the task force as Colin made unofficial calls to keep things quiet. He didn't want the media getting a hold of this and alerting the killer that police had formed a link of any kind. The meeting was set for September 8th, 1983. Since it's such a long drive between Waukegan and Indianapolis, the two sides decided to meet smack dab in the middle the courthouse-slash-jail-slash-police station of Crown Point, Indiana. On his way to the meeting, Colin kept passing news vans heading in the same direction. Uh Uh-oh. As he took the exit to Crown Point, he saw it wasn't a coincidence. No matter how quiet you want to keep something, it seems it always gets leaked. The small courthouse was packed with reporters when he walked in. They always have, uh, just like the NFL, can't keep anything a secret here. Hell no. Hell no. It's probably the goddamn office clerk who leaked this to him was like took a $25 bribe from him or something yeah he got it Bastards. he didn't have to pay for his salad this time or something uh, like that. you know we need the we need the press in america but man they can be annoying sometimes can't they mm. 
Interesting to note, there hadn't been so many lawmen and newsmen converging in the small town of Crown Point since John Dillinger made his daring escape from the county jail with a wooden pistol. Hell yeah. You know what? Uh, what's funny about this, when you're in a small town, you grow up in a smaller area like this, when one big crime happens like this, these people are probably still talking about this event happening right now. North Branch, Minnesota, they have Jesse James Day every year. Oh my god. Because he, sh- he shot up a bank there in 1800. <laughs> so, yeah. That's just, just how it goes, yeah. man. If you were to visit this area, they'd be like, you remember that one time there was the news here with all this? Like, you go to any bar, they're, they're never going to stop talking about it. I guarantee it. Standing right outside the bar, there was a newsman. <laughs> the meeting began after a lunch provided by the Indiana State Police served by inmates in the jail cafeteria. The reporters waited anxiously outside the soundproof doors while the departments compared notes. In the press conference held outside in a jail hallway, the media was led to believe that the Lake County Sheriff's Police of Illinois joining the task force meant an arrest was imminent. Mm. However, the truth was the Illinois police had exhausted all the leads in the Ralph Kalil case and were weeks past new developments in the Herrera and the unidentified boy case. And the Indiana task force was no better off. But they still have his name, right? Mm-hmm. They just can't, I'm assuming, no proof to, like, move in on him. There's so. no evidence. There's mm. motive. There's everything but evidence. They gotta send Colin up there to start blowing and jerking off some dudes, figure out who this guy is. Or, I mean, offering his services to somebody. Yeah. That's how you get Or him. McPherson. Yeah. Either one. <laughs> the strongest lead either department had was the pattern itself. The victims were men and boys usually 18 to 26 years old. They suffered numerous stab wounds, especially in the abdomen. Most were hustlers and hitchhikers. All had their pants pulled down. Most had ligature marks on their hands, most notably handcuff marks. And most had mustaches. So the mustache is a connection. Huge connecting point, yep. Okay, well I know why I'm never having a mustache now. Don't even try. (laughs) I don't think I can if I wanted to, to be honest with you. Me neither. (laughs) Usually their shirts and wallets were missing. Many had on white tube socks, and combs were found on or near several of the bodies. Hmm. At least three had traces of the hypnotic drug Placodil, which if you'll remember from last time, uh, one of the victims that lived... He drugged him so bad, he was a 14-year-old boy, he drugged him so bad with this placodil, he went into a coma and then left him in the woods. But then oh, he woke damn. up and was able to walk back so to safety. Is that, if I remember correctly, that is this the only purpose of the drug, is like a sedative? Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. How would you just openly get it all the time? I don't know. Like, can you just go to Walgreens and be like, do you got any placodil I can buy? I don't know. Some people just have strange hookups mm. for weird drugs. Mm. I, that's fucking weird. <laughs> maybe he he went to the doctor and said he had a sleeping problem, maybe? That's definitely could yeah. be the case, yeah. Because they'll give you... I, I always remember there's this one kid from school. I don't know if he's telling a lie or not, but he... I think he had um narco, or, yeah, narcolepsy. Right? No. What's the one where you can't sleep at night? Insomnia. Insomnia. And he claimed the doctor gave him a thing. If he was downstairs and his bed was upstairs, if he took his medicine, he would not make it upstairs before he fell asleep well that's how i woke up in a clothes basket once (laughs) i had a clothes basket under my so in my basement at my parents place i have like uh 
like two broomsticks are held on wires and that's like my clothes rack oh, where yeah, I hang yeah. all my clothes. Yeah. And right under that was a basket with all my socks and underwear. And I took a couple Ambien and then I was trying to get to my bed and I tripped over something and I woke up and the sun was out <laughs> and I was sitting in a fucking clothes, clothes bucket. <laughs> Damn, that shit is powerful. That's nuts. That shit's insane. Oh, man. And you can disassociate like crazy if you fight it. Like, if you fight the effects of it, you yeah. start, it's a disassociative. You have no control over what you're doing. Our, for, our former co-worker slash crazy man said he did that a few times. Like, he's prescribed it from his uh, mental issues. Yeah. And he says sometimes he'll just accidentally not go to bed and then... Yep. Be tripping balls, which is very dangerous for someone in his mental state. I can confidently say that. Terrifying. Yes. And that's how Rosie, not Rosie O'Donnell, that's how Roseanne lost her show. Oh, she she was on that? She was like, all fucked up off beer and Ambien and made some tweets. That <laughs> The craziest one I ever saw was Richard Simmons' wife on their little TV show. She took it every night to sleep and she got up in the middle of the night and fucking... <laughs> Cooked like a whole bunch of dinners, had them all stacked in the refrigerator. There was like 10 individually, like, um, individual meals packed separately. Awesome. She did that in the middle of the night. That's constructive. Well, it's dangerous. Wait, do you with... mean Richard Simmons or Gene Simmons? Gene, Gene, Gene Simmons. Okay. Because I, I was like, Richard? fitness guru Richard no, Simmons. No, sorry, Gene Simmons. Okay. The Playboy model is his wife, I believe. I can't remember what her name is. That's right, yeah. Yeah, apparently Ambien is uh, just some wild stuff. Makes you sleepwalk sometimes. You dissociate, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Detective Colin listened intently, hoping for anything to jump out at him. When they ran through the list of the three suspects they had, none of them seemed likely. Even Larry Eiler. But he did fit the FBI profile almost to a T. I mean, yeah, they, they seemed like from the first episode, they this guy should have been on their radar, like way on their radar. <sighs> FBI experts at Quantico said that the killer assuming there is only one, would be a white male in his mid-twenties to early thirties, a common laborer who didn't mind getting dirty, in fact, he might like messiness, to bolster his macho persona. He needed to present a rough exterior because he was worried about feeling attraction for other men. They added the killer was probably always on the edge of homosexual panic, forever afraid of someone thinking he was queer. As a result, he would show outward hatred of gays. This is almost Corona to a T, isn't it? <laughs> yes, isn't it, it though, is. Right? This is Juan Vallejo Corona, absolutely. What a weird di mental <laughs> dynamic. Like, you just want to do something, but you hate yourself for doing it, and it just drives you crazy. And it drives you to this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now I'm never going to look at macho men the same. You can't. You shouldn't have been. <laughs> this is a good wake-up call. <laughs> The FBI also determined that the killer must have made a considerable effort to build up his torso and biceps, based not only on the brutality of the stabbings, but also how far off the road some of the bodies were found. So we need to find a man, huge upper top, chicken leg bottoms. Glamour muscles only. Mm -hmm. That's all okay. he's working. Well, I know once, I know somebody, but I don't think they were born yet. Rob McElhenney? <laughs> no. <laughs> BS, that's what I was going to say. I uh, got you, yes. <laughs> but no, no, I don't think he would hurt anybody. At the end of the meeting, most officers stood and began filtering out to return to their own jurisdictions, but Smitty led his men over to Love and McPherson at the back of the room. Smitty and his Illinois men had evidence, but no suspects, 
And McPherson and Love had suspects, but no evidence. Ooh, it's just like how they made the Reese's Pieces. It's exactly One guy had it. peanut butter, one guy had chocolate, came together and made a delectable candy. Smashed into each other and <laughs> made a delicious treat. <laughs> that is like the funniest shit ever on is, Family that Guy. That is a Family Guy, huh? <laughs> yeah. I was wondering because it's way too funny for me to think it should be Family Guy. <laughs> it's a... Uh, He's like, Officer Reese is here. <laughs> you have chocolate in my peanut butter. He got peanut butter in my chocolate. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. The task force handed over their surveillance pictures of Eiler. He was 31 years old, nice looking but not quite handsome, muscular, and with a round baby face offset by a small mustache. <laughs> not much to go on, but of all three suspects being considered, he was the only one that made frequent trips from uptown Chicago to Indianapolis on a regular basis. Kind of suspicious. Also, let's clarify, from the in- for people who don't have Instagram on the post that have seen the picture of him, um, he's like 70s, nice looking, I would say. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say he's like modern day attractive, he's like 70s good looking. That mustache is pretty gross. <laughs> it's little very tiny. gross, it's very gross. His little blonde tash. But then again, in the 70s, that was sexy. Hell yeah, it was. Now, the task force, as well as Lake County sheriffs, knew that the uptown neighborhood in Chicago was a common theme in the discovery of the bodies. There was only one cop in attendance at Crown Point that was from the uptown neighborhood, and he knew all of the gay neighborhoods between uptown and the main gay artery in Chicago, North Clark Street. Sounds like the man to talk to. North Clark had been the happening spot for the gay and lesbian world until Little Jim's Gay Bar opened up on nearby Halstead Street in 1975. God damn it. Since then, the homosexual community had been expanding their influence all along Halstead and even further into Uptown. These four blocks of Halstead is where Larry Eiler would hang out and troll for victims. Officer Kajari was sure. I'm trying to think if I've been to this area... I definitely been to downtown Chicago and like north of Chicago. Um, I don't know. I bet I probably walked by this area. Some of these streets sound kind of familiar. Halstead and stuff. Yeah, kind of. But, uh, but yeah, I know we have Chicago listeners. Maybe they'll let us know. Yeah, for sure. Kajari always kept his eyes open. He wanted the caller on this one. At 1220 a.m. September 30th, all of Kajari's spidey senses were tingling. He had just spotted a familiar-sounding 1982 maroon and white pickup truck parked about a half block from a gay bar called Loading Dock. Ooh, okay. I love that for a gay bar it's name. fucking Hell awesome. Yes, it's I knew awesome. you were going to like that because that's... Yes. what There's no better gay bar name than Loading Dock. By the way, isn't Kajari the name of the, like, lion... The cat people? That's what I thought, too, but it's Khajiit. Ah, I was... Uh, I fucking kept thinking scuma of the, dealers. I kept thinking of, um... The the cat guy from Final Fantasy X. Oh, Kamari. Is it Kamari? Maybe. Okay. I thought you were thinking Khajiit from the uh, Elder Scrolls series, the cats that sell the skooma. Right, yes. I love those guys. Fuck yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Without telling his partner what he was thinking, Kajari pulled a U-turn to get in behind the truck where he spotted the Indiana license plates. He turned to his bewildered partner and said, Paul, that's our guy. I know it. They parked nearby, and Paul turned down the police radio. It was basically just a force of habit. This community would be able to spot an undercover police car with or without the police chatter coming through. Half an hour later, the taillights on the pickup lit up, and the detectives were able to see a little mustache baby face in the driver's seat. (laughs) So they followed. The truck prowled slowly down Halstead at 10 miles an hour. 
Kajari would see his head pop out of the window every time he cruised past a group of young men. Is he whistling at him or what? <laughs> Is he just like catcalling the dudes? Or checking what? them out, just giving them a look. All right, all right. Larry continued driving like this for 20 blocks, then the pickup U-turned and cruised the same 20 blocks again. Halfway through this trolling session, Larry stopped to talk to a young man carrying a six-pack under a light pole. A second later, the passenger door swung open and the young man got inside. Uh Uh-oh. Kajari almost went so far as to drop a Mission Accomplished banner, but now they had to follow and watch. There was, of course, no law against giving someone a ride. So far, the only thing police could be sure of was Larry didn't know he was being tailed. I don't know how he doesn't if they're following him for this long. And he's going 10 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, unless he could be an old person from where I grew up, but those (laughs) those are the only other people I know who go 10 miles an hour down every single fucking street. Hey, those people are Rick's best customers, so you fucking... Technically, they are true, but and uh, thankfully, they don't understand what technology is, and they'll never listen to this. (laughs) But yeah, when you're a young kid, you're like 16, you just want to like... Get to where you're going. Yep. And these old people are doing like 10 miles an hour down every street. They just uh, want to be safe, even though there's nothing for miles around no. them to hit. No traffic, nothing. You can just ask your kids to drive you somewhere if you need. Serious. Jesus Christ. Or get like a golf cart to putter <laughs> around in. Now now they do have those. That's smart. Mm. The truck continued for half an hour to the melting pot neighborhood called the Near North Side where residents were a strange mix of liberals, homosexuals, rich, upscale religious folks, and bums. Hmm. The already slow-moving truck came to a sudden stop. The passenger door was flung open, and the young man climbed down with his six-pack and a disappointed, uneasy look on his face. As Eiler sped away, Officer Pete Carroll called the boy over, flashing his badge and saying, We're police. What happened in that truck? The young man responded, He wanted to have sex with me, but I said no. I got this six-pack. I'm just looking to party, man. (laughs) He's got one objective for the night. He just wants to party. (laughs) Just want to party, man. (laughs) They left the kid there without explanation and tried to make up lost time tailing Larry. But Kajari went left when he should have went right and allowed him to slip up into the farmlands and away from the busy city. So, uh, clearly the vehicle goes over 10 miles an hour. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's only going that slow and he's trolling for a dick. (laughs) Okay. Kajari and Carol returned to Area 6 Detective Station and called the task force in Indiana. I just wanted to tell you, we saw Larry Eiler in Chicago tonight. Don't get too excited. When we lost track of him, he was alone. Larry was already grabbing himself another hitchhiker on the expressway headed for Indianapolis. Darl Haywood of Arkansas was hitching down to Indy for the funeral of his grandmother. As they were about to leave the Chicago Metro Loop, Larry turned to Darl and said, I've got a fantasy. Uneasily, Dari looked over. What is it? Tying up people. At this point, Larry turned his gaze back to the highway and his expression went blank, as if he were embarrassed or ashamed to be saying it. I'll give you a hundred dollars if I could tie you up and masturbate. I'd get off like that. When Darl didn't respond immediately, Larry continued, Then I'll untie you, of course. I'm not into bondage. No one ties me up. (laughs) Okay, we know the St. Jordan then. (laughs) I saw how they do it at the gay theater in Chicago and it turned me on. I come to Chicago all the time to pick up hustlers. Usually I go through an escort service, but the kid I liked picked up and moved to California. When I saw you, you are the first one to remind me of him. 
Aww. That's creepy. <laughs> That's I don't want to. You know what? It's weird enough. I've gotten this. You remind me of somebody way too many times in my life. I, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. I do think uh, one of the times we went to this like ping pong bar in uh, Minneapolis, and this random guy. I I think he was. I think it was a gay guy kind of hitting on me. Comes oh. over. He's like. Do I know you from school? And then he started like asking all these questions. I was like, no, I don't think so. I'm from Iowa, dude. I don't think you know me. I'm surprised you didn't say, do I know you from heaven when you <laughs> fell out of heaven or whatever? I don't know any pickup lines. <laughs> I think the gay pickup lines might be a little different than the straight ones. Probably a little know. more suave. <laughs> Probably. Darl thought long and hard about it before deciding, ah, what could it hurt? This creep just wanted to tie him up and get his rocks off. Plus a hundred bucks is a hundred bucks. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd. Is, you wouldn't be that laissez faire. Okay, is Daryl? Daryl. Daryl. Is he? Do we think is he gay confirmed or not? Not no confirmation. Okay, He's a hustler he, and a hitchhiker. So he just wants the cash. He doesn't care how he gets it. That's gotcha. It. Larry pulled over to the side of the highway and asked Daryl to lay down in the ditch and take his shirt off. Larry loved having sex with the sound of the highway right behind him. But it made Darl uneasy. Listen, can we go somewhere more private? I don't want to be seen tied up by anyone. Larry said sure. He knew of a barn a few <laughs> miles up the road that he used sometimes. So the two started back for the truck. He needs to work on his romantic locations here. Not he got just... a ditch in a barn. Like, come on, dude. Uh, Darl just doesn't want to be seen. <laughs> he, I think Darl has a problem, like, being seen as submissive. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That's when the young and cautious state trooper Kenneth Burley drove past. He was used to seeing long-haul truckers pull off to the side and catch a couple hours sleep, but this was a pickup truck, and bodies were popping up all over God's green earth. Mile marker 238 investigating a maroon and gray pickup with two men. He reported to dispatch over his handheld transmitter. Larry watched the trooper approach in his rear view and said in hushed tones to Darl, Listen, just don't. Don't say anything, especially about the money. As he pushed his bag of ropes and airplane liquor bottles under the seat with his foot. <laughs> airplane liquor bottles. <laughs> his single shot voice. Yes. <laughs> he's, this Larry, he's class. Peter class, isn't he? He's got single shot shots. He's got, he takes men to ditches and barns. Like, Jesus, what an asshole. <laughs> Awful. Burley asked for IDs and just what the hell they were doing outside of their truck on the side of a busy freeway. Darl said he was just taking a shit, mm. and Larry had to bring him the toilet paper from the truck that he forgot to grab before he started pooping. Uh, okay. Trooper Burley, though, knew this had to be the guy they were looking for and made up a bullshit reason to get Larry back to his squad to get more information. He's like... Darl, let me see your butthole. If there's if there's poop on there, I'll know you're lying to me. If there's no poop, I'll believe. Or no, if there is poop, I'll believe you. If yeah. there's no poop, you're in. You're getting busted. If your butt's slightly dilated, <laughs> I believe you because you just passed a, a poopy. Yeah, let me check your ass dilation. We've actually had a special tool that like measures the dilation of someone's ass, see if they actually pooped or not. Wow, he was just pooping. <laughs> Dispatcher Max Hunt was on the other side of the transmitter, and when he ran the name Larry Eiler, holy shit, this was the uh -oh. guy wanted for multiple murder cases. 
We got him. Hunt cried, and every officer in the station ran over to his desk to start reading through the case file. Fuck yeah. The only thing left to do to legally arrest Larry Eiler right now was receive authorization from the commanding officer and, of course, have a reason for arresting him. Mm. The commanding officer was Indiana State Police Sergeant John Pavlikovich. Sergeant Pavlikovich was lathering his face to shave when his phone started ringing. Dispatcher Max Hunt was on the other end, talking so fast, the sergeant could make out maybe every other word. Did this guy just transfer from the Ukraine or what? Pavlikovich? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like, I didn't... You know, you see movies and the cops are always like shaving in the bathroom. And, and apparently that's exactly what this guy was doing. That's exactly what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. He either just came over from Ukraine or he just uh, retired from the NBA. <laughs> Could be. When Pavlikovich got the whole story, he said, Max, have the two brought in and have their truck impounded. By the time the instructions were given and authorization received, Trooper Burley's backup car arrived. And now Burley knew this stop had to be important. Because his backup was none other than his squad leader, Sergeant Popplewell, <laughs> followed by Staff Sergeant Cothran. These sounds like cartoon characters. You're not. I, you're not kidding me, and I didn't realize until I was saying them out loud <laughs> how stupid they sound. <laughs> Popplewell sounds like the failed brother of Honeywell, the cooler company. Ah, AK, mm. and also the Are they thermostats. Or, yes, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Okay, cooler. I wonder who you're thinking of. I, I don't know. I thought Honeywell made all that shit. Like all know. sorts of... Appliances yeah, and stuff. Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe uh, they make furnaces and air conditioners, uh, maybe. I don't know. Hit us up, Honeywell. We'll sponsor you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Oh, wait, no. They'll sponsor us. Yeah. We don't, we don't want to sponsor them. <laughs> we'll be losing money on a multinational conglomerate. Catherine, a 19-year veteran of the state police force, was unconcerned with the finer details of police work. He forced Darrell out of the passenger side of the truck and began searching. He pulled out a nylon bag with a lock on it, broke it open, and dumped the contents on the driver's seat. In it were Larry's bondage ropes and whips, also a couple rolls of duct tape. Well, thank God there wasn't a marijuana cigarette. They would He would have been shot right yeah. then and there. <laughs> Keep in mind here, and this will get brought up in court, Staff Sergeant Cothran had no permission or warrant to search or even look at the truck. Burley went to a squad car and ordered Larry out, cuffed him, and everyone there at mile marker 238 felt as if they were floating. At last, they thought, the murders had stopped. Well, from what you were pointing at on the first episode about Larry, this I have a feeling you're foreshadowing. <laughs> and I have a bad feeling. Eiler was transferred to the back of Catherine's car in handcuffs and buckled in to be brought to the station. He had never been Mirandized. Later in court, his defense attorney would ask, At this point, did you feel like you were under arrest? Definitely. After the tow truck got Larry's Ford all packed up and ready to go, it led the procession back to the station. Usually, when suspects are walked in, everyone in the office just carries on about their business. But this time, it was a corridor of humans that wanted to take a look at the highway killer. Eiler kept his head down as he sloped his way to the processing room at 7.25 a.m. I wonder if this is the picture that I saw, because it's like him in that, like, denim outside, uh, like, fur inside jacket, and he's handcuffed. Ooh, that I could be. It is. I don't that know. Could be. The pictures of him, because of the time period, are, like, so, it's such bad quality. Oh, yeah. And for some reason, they all have, like, this, these, like, block patterns on them. I don't know if that was, like, the camera of the time or whatever. It's really weird. Block patterns. Like, 
if you were to think like a checkerboard, yeah. and it's like almost overlaying the picture of them. I don't Weird. know. It's like it's so bad of quality of a picture that it's just on there. I don't know. Weird. I don't know. It's, it's bad, terrible. Burley unlocked his cuffs and routinely had Larry remove his belt and empty his pockets into a tray. Next, he was asked to remove his boots, and no one thought twice about any of this. This all looks like he's being arrested. Yeah, exactly. With everything removed, Larry was shoved stocking-footed into a solitary confinement cell until the police could figure out their next I, move. I mean, generally, that that's what we call being arrested. Yes. <laughs> I, could, I just envisioned Larry when they handcuffed him. He's just like, this is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> he he might have had a bony. <laughs> he probably did. Once again, we'll flash forward to Larry's defense attorney later on. Hmm. By the way, Sergeant Cothran, in your own mind, had Mr. Eiler been arrested at this point? No, sir. Larry Eiler was trying to remain cool in his 6 by 9 cell. He had a major stress headache, and he called Sergeant Pavlikovich over to ask for a couple of aspirin. Pavlikovich talked it over with a few other officers before deciding it was a bad idea. There was no doctor at the station, and the police had no idea what he intended to do with them, if he had allergies to them, anything like that. Okay, I was like, well, what are two aspirin going to do? But then I forgot about the, the allergy Ooh, thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Eiler, we just can't do it. Isn't anyone going to tell me why I'm here? The sergeant felt he owed an answer, at least, since he had to refuse some aspirin. You were being held for questioning in some homosexual murders. Do you know anything about them? I have no information to give you about anything that I know of. What time is it? Around 9.30. Can you tell me when I'll be questioned or, you know, even better, released? Nope. If I want, I can hold you for pandering prostitution. So just relax, all right? Okay. Eiler's now defense attorney again. Did you feel at that point you were free to leave whenever you wanted? No. Did anyone ever tell you that you weren't under arrest? No, and no one told me I was free to go. Ugh. That's not good. It's not good. Okay, I'm assuming nowadays, even when you're in custody, you have to be re read your Miranda rights, right? Oh, absolutely. If you're in custody, you have to be Mirandized. You can be. You can optionally be there. Okay. But you. But usually, you're not going to be in a six by nine and mm -hmm. waiting and held mm -hmm. against your will and not told you can leave. It's imp it's important if you're there voluntarily that they say to you, you're free to leave at any time. Mm. They, like, should say that. I mean, thankfully, for the most part nowadays, from what everything I see, no matter what, they pretty much immediately say that. You know what? Yeah. Like, the Miranda rights is such a big loophole that it's just like, they just say it. Because you can't get in trouble for saying it too much. Right. So, so like, they just walk just around blaring it at all <laughs> yeah. times. Even though it's it's quite a lengthy thing to remember. Yeah. But you got to do it. I mean, I'm I'm glad in America we have it. I'm glad somebody's got to do it. Mm. Finally, at 12.15 p.m., the state police helicopter landed outside the station and out hopped task force members McPherson and Love. Love shook hands with Pavlikovich and asked where Larry was at. We got him in one of our cells. You what? Where else were we going to put him? He'll be all right. Yeah, see, he's definitely from the Ukraine. He doesn't understand. <laughs> you can't just throw somebody in this song call it a good day. Uh, I'm sure Love is like, what in the due process is going on here? <laughs> he's got vodka and he's got soup. He's fine. There's nothing. He, he's basically being held like a five-star prisoner in Ukraine here. It was like he could see the future and knew any defense attorney worth a damn would rip this case to shreds. 
How does Ukraine man not know this? This is insane. Oh man, he gets so pissed. Love gets so pissed. He talks about like these fucking hayseed idiots. Like, he does this not is, like these state police. It's stuff like this is how you get inner uh police rivalries mm -hmm. because you know, it's just like any workplace, honestly. How many times when we were at, you know, our branch of Walzer and we always talk shit about the other branches of them, yep. even though I think the company likes it like that. Oh, I think they do, too. I think they like that weird competition between them, but it's just it happens everywhere. You talk shit about your, your other branches. Detective Dan Collin caught up with Sergeant Love in the corridors as he was fuming. He wanted these local hayseed yokels to simply call the task force when they saw Eiler driving around. Certainly not arrest him without probable cause and with no charge in sight. Sergeant Pavlikovich had heard enough. He stormed out into the corridor after Love and screamed that he wouldn't be talked down to like this. These task force jocks weren't there when Larry Eiler was speeding down the freeway with an alive man in his truck that looked a hell of a lot like the 13 other victims they'd found so far. It wasn't until 1.30 p.m., six hours after his non-arrest arrest, that Love and McPherson were able to start their interview. Larry Eiler seemed calm, but not exactly relaxed. They opened the interrogation by asking Larry if he was a homosexual. Larry refused to answer, saying he'd answer whatever they asked about murders, but did not want to discuss his sexual orientation. McPherson and Love got him to agree to search his vehicle and even come back in three days for a lie detector. Wow. Then Love got too close to the forbidden subject again. They asked Larry if he ever visited any gay bars and predictably came back with... If he answered those questions, then people would assume his sexuality. Every question they asked always led back to Eiler saying he couldn't answer. So, this, I mean, like you mentioned, this is like his trigger. He doesn't want to be called gay, nope. even though he very clearly is. And very clearly hangs around there publicly and openly in his fucking Marines t-shirt, even <laughs> though he's never been <laughs> oh, in the Marines. Oh, yeah, I forgot you said he's stolen Valor. Man. Oh, yeah. Ugh. They brought him a glass of water and officially scheduled his lie detector in Indianapolis. If the officers didn't know any better, they would have thought Larry naive. But they did know better. And Eiler had an answer for everything. When asked about the nylon bondage ropes in his truck, he said they were for helping his sister move up from Florida. <laughs> when asked about a one-night stand he had after a night drinking at a gay bar, he claimed his memory was faulty, but wouldn't answer the question straight up because, you guessed it, talking about that right. would reveal too much about his sexuality. Right. Eiler's defense attorney later, Did anyone at any point during this period suggest you could make a phone call? No, never. Eiler was taken to another room to await the return of his truck. By 4 p.m., his personal belongings were brought back to him, <laughs> and by 7 p.m., he asked if he could go home. The desk sergeant said, sure, but they aren't done searching your truck, so you can walk if you want to. Eiler just walked right out of the back door where technicians were working on his truck. Despite only being a year old, his Ford was filled with trash and clutter. Under the front seat, they found six liquor bottles, large Atlas, Muscle Man magazine, <laughs> two six-packs, two pillows, plastic cups, Pockets cassette player, two newspapers, latex gloves, a mallet, several t-shirts, bag of athletic shorts, hairbrushes, two baseball bats, and a hammer. I mean, it's it's not the weirdest collection of stuff. Back when I was drinking and also detailing, all of this stuff was in my car. <laughs> As former detailers, you and I can tell you, you find weird shit in people's cars, man. None of this shit's really surprising. No. Not at all. I mean... No, I was going to say two baseball bats and a hammer. You can have a hammer 
for your car breaks down or something, you might need it. You never know. I had a baseball bat, a hammer, and a golf club in my last car. See? Yeah. You never know if there's a psycho on the road, to be honest with you. Or if you're going to start golfing. Right. On the I side mean, of the road. <laughs> just like the president did today. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we got to take old Donnie golfing. He can't face the truth that he's not going to be the president. In the truck bed was a small handcuff key. After the truck was gone through, technicians took tire fingerprints by rolling ink on the tires and driving over a piece of paper. <laughs> the entire time, Eiler watched without saying a word. A few minutes later, the text tossed him the keys and said, have a great day. Ooh. And so it was that Larry Eiler was released back into the world, and that's where we'll pick up in the exciting conclusion to Larry Eiler, the highway killer. Released from custody. Again. Definitely killed 13 men. Yeah, so far, that they it, know. Here's the thing. The only, like... In the to arrest him that time legally, pretty much they would have had to have had that other kid who was with him admit that he had offered him like a money for sex, basically. Right. And even then, do you know what the bond is for a prostitution charge? Uh, one hundred dollars. And really? he had that in cash on him, and that's what he was offering to pay Darl. So if they would have charged him with that, he could have bonded himself out immediately. I mean. If they would have known maybe just the cops approaching him and ask what they were doing, maybe that would have been enough to scare him, to deter him from murdering for a little while at least sure. while they built up stuff. But uh, these are 80s cops. I mean, it's <laughs> you could get away with a lot of stuff in the 80s. You cannot now. Unbelievable. You can. They could have been blasted, both of them. They probably wouldn't have even cared. You would just been like, as long as you're not asleep while you're driving down the road, you're, you're fine. Just go home. Drink and just go home and sleep it off. Yep. You're fine. Here, take take a couple of these no-dos to get you back home and then <laughs> go to sleep. That's, uh, it's uh it's an interesting fucking story. I like it uh, a lot. It it's great. It's I think it's like a really big case that not a lot of people know about. Right. Like he's got a hell of a body count on his hand. And I really wanted to jam it all into two, but I figured we'll give it the breathing room it deserves and we'll give it a part three. And really put this thing to bed the way it deserves to be. He, okay, so up to this point, how many victims is he at? Discovered, 15. Yeah, that's that's a lot. Mm -hmm. That is a lot. Holy mm. shit. So, yeah, this guy, he's, uh, he, he's a real asshole, to say the least. He's a cunt. <laughs> and uh, if you know of any other cunts like this, you can let us know on our website at bumblebuttpodcast.com. There is a form submission. Just type whatever you want in there. Guess what? Oh, yeah. We had a form submission that we'll talk about on Between the Bumbles. Fuck yeah. Also, a new Patreon and followed us on Twitch. Same, All the same guy. So that's <laughs> that good. That's it. Okay. We'll talk about your Twitching on there a little bit, too. If you want to get a hold of us any other way, you can do so at Twitter at BumblebuttPod and Facebook and Instagram at BumblebuttPodcast. Now it's time for the most important part of the show, and that is for you to leave a follow on Spotify. Hell follow yeah. us on Spotify, boys. Click Hell that yeah. follow button. Join the Spotify revolution. Now it's time for the other most important part of the show, at least if you ask Cody. It's our uh, e-penis, our iTunes <laughs> reviews, and we goddamn love getting them. Now, I cannot remember it's been a few weeks can't remember where we were at but it seems like a big jump from where we were yes so um but we did have two written ones that i can confirm and read perfect uh thank you to everybody else we start off with a good unwholesome time by rev madison so i don't know if you're actually a priest or not but, I, but, I, but I love you 
uh, says, cheers to Adam and Cody for giving us more true crime and weird tales to get us through the modern hellscape in this horrific timeline. I thoroughly enjoy this podcast. Give it a listen. That's a great way to describe uh, the last year, a, a modern hellscape. Thank Love you, Rev that. Madison. That's 100% accurate. <laughs> Best out there by Mrs. Bronham. I, I found this podcast on Instagram and decided to check it out. Well, it's safe to say that I'm... I think this is fucking hooked. It says ducking hooked, but <laughs> ducking thank you. <laughs> I've listened to it nonstop for days. Awesome job, guys. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mrs. Bruck Bruckheimer. What was it? It says Bronham. Thank you, Mrs. Bronham. I hope you are a teacher of some kind. Yeah. That's a perfect teacher's name yes. right there. I love Brownhams as well. <laughs> also, if you want to be a real hero, you can buy a shirt. And if you want to be the superhero, you can join us on patreon.com slash podcast. Cody, I think we have some new Patreons. Is that true? We do. We need to thank Taylor. That's the guy. That's there. the guy I was talking about. Yeah. I sent you a message, Taylor, about your shirt and everything. So respond back to us there. Or send us an email, one or the other. So thank you. Thank you so much. Hell yeah. Do we have other new Patreons at this time? I do not believe so. Perfect. All right. Excellent. That's really good stuff, guys. That's excellent. Couldn't, we appreciate it so much. That's excellent. <laughs> but we want you to keep in touch with us and pay attention to the social media and pay attention to Twitch, where Cody and I are both uh, doing like a giant bomb style mm. thing where we go live. The streamy boys. There's a couple of streamy boys. Mm. Twitch.tv slash Bumble Adam if you want to give that a shot. Give oh, it a yeah. follow. We get to 50, then we can be affiliates. And yeah, I don't know what that means. We're close. We got like 32 followers. It's pretty good. That means you can add a subscription button is what that means. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'd be all right. Hell yeah. I throw that bad boy on there. Maybe they don't want to do the Patreon because Patreon can... The website's a nightmare. It is like, atrocious. <laughs> so if you wanted to do donation, you could do it on there Bezos, as well. Bezos, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, he gets a piece of it, but uh, what are you going to do? Jeff, He's got a piece of everything. Of yeah, he he gets a piece of everything. You can't control him. No. Can't be tamed. <laughs> all right, everybody. That's going to do it for all of us here at the Bumblebutt Podcast. I've been Adam. That's been Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. All right, everybody. Have a nice weekend. Unless it's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>